The Fanny Mechanics Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanics Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash. This episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the juicy topic of pornography addiction. We go deep with Dimitri Duchamp. Dimitri opens up about his personal addiction to pornography and how he kicked the addiction. He shares his why. Why does he now help other men heal from this common problem? A little bit about Dimitri. He is a pornography addiction recovery coach, shadow work facilitator, and personal development and sexuality expert. Dimitri was born in the suburbs around Paris, France, or some of you would say France. He studied fundamental physics until he flew to Sydney in 2011 to complete his PhD in astrophysics at Macquarie University. After he graduated in 2014, Dimitri felt a calling in coaching and personal development. He founded Better World Coaching in 2015 to guide and help people in their relationships and sex life until he branched out to focus in particular on the problem of pornography and coaching men out of pornography with the accomplished man. All along, Dimitri was a sex addict and addicted to pornography until he healed himself in 2017. He now devotes himself to creating a global movement of healing and purpose for the accomplished man while also refocusing his interest for astronomy, into archaeoastronomy and ecology and in gifted children education. Dimitri strives to answer two questions. What is the topological structure of the mind and its applications for a happy life? And how can humans live in harmony with nature? In this episode of The Fanny Mechanic, Dimitri is generous with his sharing of his lived experience of being addicted to pornography. He takes us on a journey from his childhood in France, France, to manhood in Australia. He talks about the differences between Australian men and French men. How does a French man please a woman in bed? The importance of sexual consent. And he explains what the nice guy syndrome is. What led him to sleep in a tent for a couple of months? He answers many of my questions, ranging from, how can you tell if your partner is addicted to porn? How can you help them kick the addiction? How can parents of young teenagers prevent porn addiction in their children? Why should they prevent porn addiction in the first place? What is addiction to pornography? What does it actually mean? What are the signs and the symptoms of porn addiction? What leads to a porn addiction? How does one know if he's addicted? And I say he because more men are addicted to porn than women are. What made Dimitri start coaching men to help them quit their addiction? What does his coaching involve? And what strategies, techniques does he use to help men quit? Of course, I also had to ask him about astrophysics because, well, what is astrophysics? Hang around for the full episode, please, because there are so many true nuggets of wisdom and advice that come out of this episode. And well, all I can say is that listening to a French accent is pretty easy on the ear. I hope you enjoy my episode with Dimitri. Dimitri Duchamp, thanks for letting me know how I would say your name in French. (laughs) Thanks for joining me on The Fanny Mechanic. You have a lot of interesting history and in terms of your background, but I wanted to start, before we go into pornography and addiction, I actually wanted to ask you about astrophysics because I know little about it and some of our listeners may be in the same place as me. Can you tell us what astrophysics is? Sure. 
Thank you for having me, Natasha. Um, astrophysics is basically the physics of astronomy. So astronomy oh. is the study of the sky and the objects that are in the sky. And astrophysics deals with the physics really at the, the particle level of of those objects. So you could be, it's very close to astronomy. You could be doing astronomy, but not doing astrophysics. If you're um, learning all the constellations by heart, you're really good in astronomy, but you're not touching to astrophysics. Um, if you're doing physics on Earth, working in a, in a particle accelerator, working with particles and physics, but you're not doing astronomy. But if you study the physics of stars and how stars act as a nuclear reactor, for example, then you're doing astrophysics. So that's what it is. And what made you get into that? Um, when I was eight years old, I told my teacher that I wanted to be an astrophysicist. Probably didn't quite know what it meant at the time, but um, I, I always had... Um, I guess it was a fascination for the sky. Um, my family often talked about me as looking up in the sky when I was a child. And um, when I was six, my Christmas gift from Santa, obviously, was a, a telescope. And uh, I think that really marked me and it started the journey towards, um, yeah, towards astronomy and astrophysics. So you grew up on the outskirts of Paris? That's right. And And how is the sky in the outskirts of Paris compared to yeah. Sydney? Because you're in Sydney, is that, is that right? That's right. Well, currently I'm in Lura in the Blue Mountains. So oh, there you are. Yeah. Sydney, about 100 kilometres. Um, yes, the, the sky in the surfaces of Paris is exactly as we imagine it to be. It's uh, absolutely awful. Um, you can only have access to a few stars visually from there, uh, and it's pretty much the same in Sydney as well. There's uh, pollution from cars that are a big problem, and obviously light pollution as well, which is a growing issue. Uh, and we used to have light pollution only on Earth from um, street lights and things like that. But now there's also pollution from satellites and um, some companies that I won't name that are launching a lot of satellites at once and create strange patterns in the sky. So um, yes, you need to have good conditions to be able to observe the sky. Uh, in a way that's that's meaningful. And the Blue Mountains are a perfect scenery for that, obviously. Is that what took you to the Blue Mountains because the sky was clearer? It's not so much the the sky. Well, it's, it's nature in general. Um, after eight years in Sydney, I just felt like I wasn't – it was a big cost for me to live in the city. The comfort of life wasn't great. And, and I just loved nature and the wilderness. And so – I just went and live in the wilderness in the Blue Mountains. And it's, it's been one year so far. And we just actually moved in with Caroline, my partner, into our new house in uh, Lura, the Blue Mountains. And we're so excited. Do you have any pets there? We don't have any pets. Um, we don't have any pets. Not we, yet, uh, maybe. It's, yes, it, it's, it's planned. Um, once we buy land and, and do all our permaculture, all our, our big projects, then we certainly will have pets. Uh, your PhD in astrophysics, what did that involve? What did right. you do that in? That's right. So so a PhD, the title of my PhD was Estimating the Binary Fraction of Planetary Nebulae Central Stars, which is, which is not too crazy as a title compared to some of the PhD titles that I've heard before. 
Um, and basically, there's two things. Um, when stars die, stars like the sun, which is a very normal star, die, they explode. And um, after 5 billion years, that's going to be for the sun. And when they do, they just uh, display beautiful colors. It just looks like an exploded star. So there's a, a core at the center and beautiful shapes and colors around it. That's called a planetary nebula. And you can Google that. The, the mo some of the most beautiful images um, that we've got from Hubble and, and all these uh, observatories are of planetary nebulae. So that's the one fact. And then there's the second fact, which is that one in two stars in the sky are binary stars. So one in two stars that you see above your heads at night are actually uh, companion stars. They orbit around each other. They're, they're close to each other and they rotate around each other. And so the purpose of my PhD was to estimate what was the percentage of planetary nebulae that were actually binary. And you would expect that to be 50%, because as I said, one in two stars in the sky are binary. But as it turns out from my statistics and observation, I resulted with a 90% result, which informs us that planetary nebulae are probably a binary star phenomenon and not a single star phenomenon, which challenges the current model for stellar evolution that's been established for the past 30 years. So these were really exciting results to come up with. Wow, I never thought of that as in as in the stars are kind of hanging out with each other. Is that what you mean? That's right. That's right. So <laughs> wow. um, stars can be single, they can be binary, they can be ternary, they can be cheeky. Um, yes, there's a, the, or they can make a whole group, which is a cluster. That's right. So there's a lot of stars that show multiplicity living together. Wow. I, I don't think I'll look at this guy the same way anymore. That's right. <laughs> now, um, moving on to... Your um, addiction, your sex addiction, I wanted to ask you, Dimitri, going back to 2017, um, you had said that you were a sex addict and that you were addicted to pornography and then you healed yourself in 2017. Can you, can you talk us through that? How did you know you were a sex addict? What, what does it mean to be addicted to pornography? Sure. So, so sex addict... And sex addiction and addiction to pornography are sort of two facets of a similar coin and they kind of all go together, but they don't have to be. Um, I would say that if you're addicted to pornography, then you're a sex addict because pornography belongs to the sexual realm. Um, but you don't, you don't need to be uh, addicted to pornography to be uh, a sex addict. Mm. And so so there were these two facets for me. There was the need for the constant craving for, for sex um, with, with real people. And there was also, um, in terms of scarcity, uh, then going back to pornography. And, and it was also playing an active part in the sexuality. So they're, they're kind of two separate things. And I healed them in really different ways, both, which is kind of interesting uh, because it was a real separate process. So I guess the first, the first step for me was to, to realize, um, I guess, should I, should I go, should I go back to, to the very beginning yes, of, of my, my evolution? Mm. Um, I remember as a child already, I, I was, I had an early interest in, in sexuality, which I didn't know was called that at the time. I was probably eight years old. 
um, when I have already memories of, of fantasies and um, exploration of self, uh, where I thought this was already a bit marginal, a bit different, and there are probably other people weren't doing this kind of things. Um, and I had, um, on the flip side, I had, I had a lot of lovers um, as I was a child, but they were, there was a one-way love. I was in love pretty much of every woman I was meeting. Uh, and that includes movies, and I was counting my lovers. I had 140 lovers as a child, but obviously that was a one-way thing, uh, which for me was enough. So I had this like fascination for women, I feel, I was growing at the time as well. Um, yes, and, and also, and, and as time flew, I had this, this imagery, this, this fantasies that was growing. I was still young, between maybe 8 and 12 years old, and I'm surprised now when I think back about about all this content, like why, where, where was this content coming from? Because at the time I hadn't been in touch with pornography already, but I really had this, uh, this, this curiosity. It wasn't such a drive at the time, more curiosity before poverty. And um, then I fell into pornography by the age of 13. So it was a very big taboo for me when we had the internet at home. Um, my dad had given me the talk, you know, this website where you shouldn't go and this and that. And I was fully aware of what it was describing. And uh, and I did not go onto these sites until one day I was um, sleeping over a friend's, uh, at a friend's place. And he said, hey, you know, there's these kind of sites that, that they're really exciting. And I'm like, oh, no, I don't think we should. And he said, yes, I think we should. It's exciting anyway. And we went on. And that was my first contact with pornography. It was introduced by um, by a friend at the time. And that was the beginning for it. And and I remember on that day, this vivid, this vivid feeling of on the way, walking back from that friend's place, I was like, wow, this was something incredible. Like this was something that is, that was so fulfilling. And, and my life is going to be different from that day on. I, I knew that on that day from that experience. Uh, I guess I wasn't too sure what kind of different then and probably didn't realize the implications of the difference. But um, I, I had found really something that I was valuing enormously after that first contact with pornography. And so I went on um, after that. Uh, teenagehood was pretty miserable. Uh, it was marked with depression, uh, rejection by girls at the time, and in parallel, escalation with pornography. Um, into more and more extreme content, more and more uh, detached from reality, more and more niche content as well. Uh, until I had my first experience, sexual experience at 19 years old, which at the time for me felt really late. It's kind of funny. I was really stigmatizing myself as if there's a rush, as if there's a, there's a train to catch. So, um, so there was this duality where I was really sex craving and, uh, and and educated, I guess, in many ways, or I had seen a lot. Not that pornography acts as a education, but um, but uh, in in some ways it can. And and on the other side, emotionally and sentimentally, I was I was pretty pretty appalling and, and devastated. So I had my my first experience at 19 years old, and I had a partner, um, and one of my housemates. <laughs> who's also a really good friend who wants to remain anonymous, um, but basically was was a womanizer. And he, I learned from him unconsciously. It wasn't my intention. I was in a good relationship for, for six years 
or four years, sorry, with the partner. But I saw how he was doing. He was bringing another another girl every time at home, and and then I learned how how you could just uh, pick up, I guess, and have many sexual encounters. And I think unconsciously that appealed to me. And so even though I was in a great relationship, I felt like I had to leave that relationship, uh, but I couldn't explain why. And, and looking back now, it was probably the sex addiction in me that was starting to take over my life decisions. Um, and, and pretty much that, that, that links up with my coming to Australia. Um, I came to Australia to do my PhD. Uh, I just had a craving for, for the wilderness, discovering the outback, uh, learning more about the Aboriginal culture. And, um, and, and that coming to Australia, I kind of set up well with discovering sexuality in a way where I wasn't empowered to have as many relationships as I wanted. And it was basically a bit of a playground for exploration. So I did that and I kind of pushed, kind of pushed the limits. At some point I said, well, look, I'm a sex addict. I, the day I labeled myself a sex addict, I really... I really found freedom from that. I realized it, that it's not that I was creepy. It's not that I was crazy. It was just that, hey, I had that thing going on. I'm a sex addict. And so um, there's this aspect of my life that I have to deal with. And, and then I felt instantly better because I realized, oh, well, this, this is just this little box on the side that I can deal with when I want to, but the rest of my life is fine. And so as I realized I was a sex addict, then I... I was like, all right, well, where, where do I honor these desires and, and where are the other people that I can meet who are in my situation? And I turned towards the BDSM scene in, in Sydney or the fetish scene in Sydney, which I, uh, I joined for a short incursion. And the incursion was short because on a beautiful night at a BDSM party at the Hellfire, you probably know uh, this bar if you're into the fetish yes. scene on yeah. the street. Does that still um, exist though? It's uh, it did exist a few years back, so um, I, I would assume it does. I, I haven't been in that scene back now, so um, I wouldn't be able to tell you. <laughs> but um, yeah, on a beautiful night at the at the BDSM party at the Hellfire, two girls decided to have a go at me because I'd been I'd been a jerk. I'd been been I'd had a lot of ego, and and they made me they made me realize that. And they basically killed my ego on the spot through um, what I sensed as humiliation. It's a bit of a long story, but basically they just rejected me in a very sensual way, which was a total mindfuck for me. And um, and that's it. I was shattered. Then for a whole week, I was shattered. And I realized I have a problem. I'm a sex addict, but now this is bad. So I came to realize that I had to, to heal. Um, and there was also a time when I was broke as a PhD student, uh, $22,000 a year as a stipend. I was pretty broke and I was pretty tired of living in a flat where I didn't feel a connection of living in this place. So I bought a tent and I lived in a tent for two months that was just uh, next to university. So it was convenient, a bit of a Walden episode of my life, I guess. That was Macquarie University, is that right? That's right. That's right. And... Um, and then after after being there, I saved a bit of money, and someone informed me there was a tantra class in Surrey Hills, and I was like, ah, oh, let's see what this is about. And I really I really liked the class, and basically, with the the help of the guides in the class, I came to realize that I was suffering from 
what will be labeled later as the nice guy syndrome, coming from a place of codependency, I was seeking a va validation from women. Um, and and that's, I was a compulsive giver. I was, compel I was compelled to giving orgasms and finding validation in, in that process. And, and acknowledging that and understanding that uh, freed me on the spot. That was, that was really the day, I could tell you the day and, and the minute, I haven't recorded them, but that's pretty much freed me on the spot to realize that. And, and then it was a slow journey from, uh, it was a quick, quick journey to, to healing totally from these compulsive behaviors with sexuality. So, so that was pretty insane. It had a really a profound impact on me where I realized, wow, you can heal from, from 15 years of sexual misery and uh, underactivity and overactivity with just like five words. And I guess that's when I started to want to become a coach even more. Um, yeah, thanks to that healing, then I didn't have these crazy relationships I was into. I met my current fiance, Caroline. Uh, which I'm so in love with, and uh, we live a happy life in the Blue Mountains. Um, and still, after a few years, though, of living together with her, I went back to pornography. And this was a shock for me because I was like, I, I thought I was free from this crazy sex life, and then I was not. Um, and I went back into pornography, and I was, I was, uh, I was shady, and I was, I was feeling shame, and I was hiding. And I'm like, well, this is not what I want in my relationship, and so I have to find a solution. So this was like the second. Uh, second moment for me when I realized there's still something to work on and I have to heal this now. You pretty much know when the time comes that there's no, there's no, there's no going back from that moment. And so basically I healed myself from, um, from my addiction to pornography. It was, it was uh, a steady process of analyzing myself, analyzing the content I was consuming and what was the like psychoanalytical ties in that content, the transfer of power, etc., that was happening in the content I was consuming, and and after that, in a slow process of reducing my consumption um, with particular technique, I healed myself after 17 years of struggle and 16,000 hours of counted 16,000 mm -hmm. hours lost in pornography and reinforcing the wounds that I was carrying, I was free. So that's pretty much the very long intro to, um, to yes, the sex addiction and pornography addiction as I have lived them. So 16,000 hours you spent with your head in pornography. Is that right? That's right. Wow. Going back 13 years of age, um, that's when your interest kind of sparked. Uh, was that internet? pornography you had access to then or was it magazines what was it that's right it was internet pornography um so the, it's it's interesting to say that my interest was not sparked i had a i had sexual curiosity sure that was sparked but not at all in in pornography uh, and it was a real taboo for me i never i never disobeyed in my life I never disobeyed to my parents um i never did anything anything bad and um or morally reprehensible by by my parents and um and then and then i was exposed to pornography by someone who th thought was okay so this is how it happened mm. um when i was 13 and it was internet pornography i would i was curious i was kind of like looking with the corner of my eyes into magazines and things like that when we were at the at the bookshop or at the library 
Um, but I would have never dared to just flap a magazine on the table and be like, uh, and pay for it and, and do my things. So yes, it was internet pornography. It was very much, uh, very much how, how it became mainstreamly available and created a lot of damage very quickly. So what year was that? Just so we can gather a, a timeline. Ooh, um, so I'm 33 now. We're in 2020. This is going to be a hard calculation. No, it's 20 years back, 2000. Mm, okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah, because I remember my first uh, exposure to pornography was Playboy magazines uh, in the 80s. Yes. And yes. obviously the internet didn't come into play until many years later. Um, you talked about niche content. Is there any type of content? Because I know there's different types of porn and uh, yes. there's some more popular types and less popular types. Um, what what kind of porn were you into? Um, it's it, it varied across time, uh, but it's it's basically an escalation. It felt like it's starting as like you when you don't know pornography, you kind of watch like love making making videos and you, you look at people making love and you're like oh okay that's interesting and then there is that discovery phase like you you, you push into pornography you don't know what it is and then there's this desk discovery phase where you're like you're like a child in an ice cream shop where you just want to try everything and, and see how it feels um so there's a few interesting um context i was i was only consuming lesbian pornography which uh, later back now um realizing is reflects really the fascination for women that i had and putting women on the pedestal and that how that suited with um yeah validation and the nice guy syndrome and wanting to please women so it was only lesbian pornography and then it escalated into uh, bdsm pornography and then uh, any any extreme pornography related to um yeah, I, I, I'm feeling a bit of a, a blockage here, but basically, mm. yeah. A bit of all sorts, bit of, so things kind of developed and sounds like your That's curiosity right. took you different places. That's right. And and it, the more the more you stay in that zone, the more you want new things and the more you go into things that are marginal and, uh, and different and, and that you feel odd about because these fantasies you never had in your life. You only have them because you've seen them done on this platform but you never had these as an intuitive behavior, especially not as a child. So when it came to your first sexual encounter at 19, um, yes. how did you feel after you had that encounter? I mean, actually, firstly, going into that encounter, did you feel that you were kind of, you knew everything because, you know, you'd watched so much porn, you were confident and you were all going to be, you were going to be good. And then coming out of that experience, how did you feel compared to when you went into it? Yes. So I, I guess I had the clarity to realize that pornography was not education and that pornography was not um, reality. So I had I didn't have um, any crazy expectation when, for my first time, especially as a first time, I kind of knew uh, by 18, you kind of know you've heard everybody's stories already. You kind of know that uh, it's not going to be... Um, this like intense beast mode, whatever, whatever you expect it to be uh, moment. And that it takes a bit of time to, to, to create this the connection. So now I was very happy. Uh, it was just a beautiful moment of, of love really. And um, there was, it was kind of like this duality between pornography. There was the, 
it was the exitory for uh, for this either violent or this repression that was inside of me and and my relationships where I was really not vanilla but uh, I was really really tender really loving um, and and I guess I never tried to really mix these two worlds is probably why I was um, uh, my my relationships were pretty successful in spite of my addictions that I understood. Or at the time, at, at least I assumed that these worlds should never be mixed together. Um, yeah, so, so it, it, it felt aligned. It felt it felt like it was a good moment. So, um, with your partners that you've had until now, have there been any relationships you've been in where it's kind of ended because your partner had an issue with your porn addiction? Uh, it it never really it never really happened no because I was able to cover it um, and it was pretty much always hiding when I was the case um, so or if I wasn't hiding it um, my partners knew but um, yes it wasn't it wasn't too obvious to them in their daily life that I was doing that it'd be when they were away or things like that so um, it's happened to me that I as I opened about my desires um someone turned turned their well pretty much the relationship broke down as i mentioned that i was a sex addict and that i had i had needs and urges and things like that but i guess we weren't just uh, that compatible but other than that it was it was it was not it was never poorly received there was always attention to that that was given but i think my partners never realized and minimized and overadapted a lot so that it feels like it's not it's not too important. And it's and when I was in good relationships, I never really um, you know, I was doing it from time to time, going back to pornography, but it wasn't a major thing. But it was between relationships, between long-term relationships, uh, when I was um really having flings and things like that, that then you get into this mode of of like hunting and and you there's really like this performance of um Yes, just just um, just having as many partners as you can and fulfilling as many fantasies as you can, which is not 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 a not a healthy mindset. Yeah, I suppose if you've spent and you've counted sixteen thousand hours, it's quite a, a lot, isn't it? Um, it is. Yeah, they say you're an expert at ten thousand hours at anything you do, so that makes me officially an expert <laughs> at pornography. There you go. And um, going back to the Hellfire Club. Those two girls that obviously did something to you that night. Uh-huh. Um, obviously, the, it, you said that they made you uh, realize that, or it sounded like you had offended them. Or yes, yeah, yes, yes. Had Very you not so. offended them, um, but it probably was a different experience. But do you remember what what had you said or what had you done? You don't have to go into detail, but what was it with that encounter that caused them to turn on you? Yes, yes, of course. Uh, I'm happy to share any details. I'm, I'm a bit more private about pornography because yeah, I don't want to offend or, um, yeah, still things I'm, I'm trying to work out the, the level of what's what's sayable and what's not in public. Mm. But um, but in regards to real partners, there's never anything that I can I need to to uh, to diminish or or hide. Um, it was so it was a two time thing. I was. I had an account on FetLife, uh, which um, some of you may or may not be familiar with, but it's basically the Facebook of the fetish scene, I guess. And um, and there was this event at the Hellfire. So I joined that event, and then I made these two uh, girls, and, and, and 
and it was a dominant and a submissive and the submissive to be really, really nice. And she approached me and she said, Oh, you know, I think my, my dumb would really like to talk to you. And I was like, Oh, sure. Because I was uh, having this fixation on, on uh, lesbians and, and women. And I was like, sure, that sounds great. And we had a bit of a, bit of an encounter, the three of us, and even had a bit of sex in the premises, which I'm not meant to be, to be doing. And it was great. There was like a taboo and I was so proud and, and, accomplished on that night and it was probably one of the highest points of, in my in my in my sex life having this public encounter and and i felt really rogue and um and obviously that led out a lot of ego in me to come out which i didn't know at the time was was ego and um then i added the i added these two girls on fit life and they and then we were chatting and then i wrote to the sub whose name I will not reveal. Um, hey, you know, I think I'm going to, I don't, I don't remember how I worded it, but I said, Hey, you know, I'm kind of having something going on with your dumb and it's going, it's going to happen and it's going to be great. And I don't know why I said that because, because that sub has been, had been so kind to me and inviting and she's done such a great job at welcoming me into that new scene. And, and I was just, just, just been a, a prick or a dick, to be honest. And, and I thought she wouldn't care, but she did. She did. And she replied very wholeheartedly and with a lot of genuine anger. She said, you shouldn't do that. Um, I've always had guys come between me and my dom and I don't think it's right. And I'm the one who invited you and et cetera, et cetera. And I was really, really touched because she was being, being genuine and, and I'd never seen anyone not going to a power play, but rather just be themselves. So, so that, that for me was a sign of intelligence that that was too late. The harm was done and I could not, uh, I could not go back. Um, and that's also when I saw people who were responsible, she was responsible. She cared about her relationship and she was defending it, which that's another thing that I had never seen done before in a genuine way, not in a power play way. And so anyway, that's it. Then the one month later, the same party at the Hellfire happens. And I tell the girls, are you going to be there? They say yes. I'm saying, oh, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be great. And um, in the meantime, I had a bit of a tease from, uh, from the Dom. Um, and we had a bit of an interaction. Yeah. And then they were, they were there at that, on that night. And I was like, hey, girls, what's up? And uh, they ignore me, which... For me, needing validation from women was was the hardest thing you could ever do is to ignore me. And then I saw um, the sub in her all her beauty, and I said, what, "What's what's wrong?" And I grabbed her shoulder, uh, not aggressively, I just grabbed her shoulder, and she and she just went, "Ah, oh, stop it!" In a very sensual way, she moved her shoulder, and she was very sexy, and I was completely rejected by her whole sexiness because of the the harm that I had caused. And that was just devastating. And, and then I couldn't handle it. I spent, I spent another four hours at the club looking at the walls. And, um, and then for a whole week, I was, I was shattered. Wow, I thought you were going to say she slapped you out or punched you. No. <laughs> but see, all it took was like that. a little subtle, just, yeah. It was so mm. subtle. That, and that was the beauty of it, you know, just that shoulder movements. And, yeah, you know, as, like I was between people who were getting tied in, in rope and people getting whipped and people who had fire in their back, you know, so many things could have gone wrong in these circumstances, but no, it's, it's that shoulder and the lifting of the shoulder with so much poetry that just completely destroyed me. 
And that it sounded like that was a pivotal night uh, that then led on to you uh, connecting with another group of people and you were labelled or you connected with the term nice guy syndrome. Um, That's right. Can you talk to us more about what that means? Yes. So the nice guy syndrome is a term that's been coined by Dr. Robert Glover, who's written a book about it. And apparently now nice guy has been trademarked into its own thing. So there you go. Wow. Um, am I even allowed to talk about it? I don't know. And um, um, yes. And basically what Dr. Robert Glover says in his book is that there's a, and it gets a bit political, which um, I'm not really interested in the politics of it, and I don't know if I back up the politics, but basically he's claiming that um, as a as a comeback of of feminism and as a comeback of war and the lack of rituals of initiation for men, basically that's that's the core point. Um, men do not know how to behave as as men, and um, basically. This, this nice guy syndrome emerges from that, this, this needs for validation. Um, it, the way he describes it is not so much a causality thing. He, he was organizing men's circles for a while and observed that a lot of men seem to have this, this aspect of codependency. And that was back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, codependency and um, just being too nice. And they were just, just complaining of being too nice. And this, this guy who once introduced himself at one of these groups and said, I am the nicest guy you will ever meet. And I think for uh, Dr. Robert Glover, that was the that was a key point. He said, yes, these are nice guys. And there's a syndrome of that, which is the nice guy syndrome. Um, that's that's pretty much um, how how you describe it. So so for me, and, and any nice guy who's a nice guy, trademark, will understand th- these terms. And yes, there are people who suffer from codependency, uh, men who suffer from codependency, from um, having trouble into exerting their, their willpower, into influencing people, uh, and they just abide by everything that happens around them. And it was very true for me. Uh, very true for me. It still is true. It still is true in many ways. It's, uh, I was a 10 out of 10, now I'm probably a 2 out of 10. But it's still that trait that I can still identify in me. So is a nice guy someone who says yes all the time to everything? And That's has right, no, and has no boundaries, and says no. Exactly. Again, that guy is a yes man. Um, that's exactly that. And I'll tell you, uh, this weekend I had an awesome, awesome um, boundaries workshop, which um, that I did with uh, Justin Lee, and um, and we did exercises in authentic relating and things like that. And and that's pretty much it. It's it's how to value boundaries, and and those guys haven't had these education and that they're not totally identified to that and it's still something that's an active object of uh, both work and research for me um and and i yes i can still see the strength and it's it's interesting to observe so then when you went and slept in a tent for two months what else did you learn so I made a little youtube series of these videos on my youtube channel um there's not much on it, but if you just look at Dimitri Dusha on on YouTube, you'll find you'll find it. And it was called Urban Jungle. And what did I find? Um, I found that that I had enough. Not in terms like I've had enough. 
in terms of I have enough, I am enough. Maybe that's what I learned, that I am enough, that I don't need to do a million things, that I can just, there was literally nothing in that tent. There was a tent and a shirt that I used as a pillow and a sleeping bag, and that's all there was. And I realized that I, I loved waking up to the sound of birds, that birds had conversations, that if you stayed long enough in nature, your, your senses would attune to nature in order for you to perceive more of, of what's happening. Your, your senses evolve with your environment. Um, yes, and I realized that I, I did not need to live in the urban context, that I had a true love for nature, and that it was a great time for introspection. The notion of time also really changed. Um, I realized that I don't need a torch. I could walk back my way out in the forest uh, without light. So there was a lot of interesting adaptations that came out of that journey. And then on a beautiful um, night, which was not a beautiful night, on a night, uh, two months later, um, I had received a call from my, from my twin sister um, who that was a bit strange and I was a bit puzzled. And then I came back and all the trees had fallen down and, and I wasn't sure if it was a storm or if they'd been cut down. And so I took it as a sign that it was time for me to move on. Um, and it's also at that time that I met Caroline, my partner. So I, it, it is a time where I kind of walked back from society, even though I was still going back to work on my PhD, but it's the time when I decided to heal from my sex addiction, to look into myself, um, and that's when I met um, the love of my life and relevant people. So it was definitely one of the best decisions I ever made, especially because I was I had complete agency over this decision. So then, what made you then realize that you could be a coach for other men to to help quit pornography and its addiction? Yes. So um, being a nice guy has some positives. It's not all to blame. But um, as as someone who's been codependent, I was also really good at listening. Um, and I also think I have a gift in being able to to process information and to read people and to read myself. So I believe that I can access some part of my unconscious and I can pretty much visualize my train of thought and and go back to the source of that thought at the more or less unconscious level it's it's uh it's the best way i can describe it so far even though it's from complete uh, but also i had a genuine a genuine desire to to help people um i started to i started realizing i wanted to to talk about sexuality that people didn't know much about sexuality that there was a lot of misunderstanding that there was a lot of unsaid things um and then at, at some point i i was at a friend's place in the blue mountains and uh, they were very engaged in the conscious scene and the spiritual scene in the blue mountains and, and i said guys maybe i can run a workshop about how to please women and at the time it seemed pretty crazy to me because it, it wasn't as present in my life all these workshops all this educational sexuality like we're doing right now wasn't as present and and I thought maybe I can do that. And they said, look, it's a great idea, and our house is not the space for that. <laughs> so I didn't go ahead and I didn't do the workshop. But uh, but it showed me that I had the confidence to to address that publicly 
and that sexuality was not a taboo for me, that I could talk about sexuality like I could talk about anything else. And so I went on and became a coach um, by just coaching people uh, in their relationships and sexuality, mostly. And the topic of pornography has been only for the past um, year. It's been a gradual process, but I would say it's been only for the past two years that I've been focusing on that uh, on that niche specifically. And and I think it has it has a wealth to it. I loved I love coaching about relationships and I love coaching about sexuality. But it was missing this this like this global aspect to it. It was like it was like helping one soul at a time, and it was great. But I, I felt like I had more ambition that I wanted to tackle a big issue and, and make an impact in a big way. And pornography is the perfect, perfect field for that. Before I ask you about the accomplished man, um, how do you please a woman sexually? Right. Well, it, it comes from uh, listening first, um, listening, creating. I think there's a lot, a lot to be done with the rapport that you build um, with with the person, whether it's a fling or in a relationship, um, there's a lot of touch, uh, a lot of rapport, a lot of seduction is always is always is always good. Um, at first, I would say creating this tension. Then there is this element of of confidence, this element of comfort, um, and this element of touch. I found. I guess it's at that time around 2012 where I also had, that was the peak of my spiritual awakening, I would say, between 2011 and 2013 was when that awakening happened. And 2012 was the peak of that. And that's when I realized that this this sex thing that I'm doing is nearly a spiritual thing because I just wanted to invite women into a space of comfort where I could please them sexually and where they could be themselves and feel feel loved and appreciated. And and be put on a pedestal, which is what I wanted. And so and so there was this this nearly ritual thing that I was doing, where I would uh, we would go on a date, and I was I was quite young at the time, so I was very much into seduction and and, and picking up and these kind of things. And then we would go back to my place, and then I would invite them into a massage, and would spend a long time building this rapport and this massage into a soothing environment with heat if necessary or music or anything that was bringing comfort. Um, and then uh, transiting from the massage to to sex, if they were comfortable with that. And, and, and again, it was very much, it was very much touched. It was very much with the hands. The hands were the healing, the healing component. I could feel what they were feeling. I could feel the distress. I could feel the love. I could feel the, the pleasure within my hands. So, so I use my hands a lot, and then it, it's really about knowing the woman's anatomy, um, progressively moving from one region to another, reading consent. Uh, there's a subtle balance between asking for consent, like "Can I do this, please?" or just transiting and making sure it's okay. And yes, and then kind of exploring, exploring that body, um, and this anatomy into into any ways that feel that feel relevant at the time. But certainly it goes with uh, clitoral stimulation, G-spot stimulation, uh, all the all the er erogenous zones, the U-spot, the uh, O-spot, all the spots that we don't know about, anal stimulation, uh, anything anything goes that was that was appropriate. I'm for, so for glad you brain. mentioned the word clitoris. 
10 points to you. (laughs) And the the whole thing about reading for consent, I think is very interesting that you mentioned, you know, being able to, I mean, I suppose it's implied consent. You can just, you're obviously in tune with that person and and you can sense that they are happy to proceed, but. That's right. It's a subtle art. mm, It is. So uh, fascinating. So do you use any of those, uh, you know, uh, guides or bits of advice in your accomplished man coaching sessions. Can you tell us more about the accomplished man? Sure. So as it turns out, I actually do not uh, teach that, uh, even though I'm still passionate about that topic. I've never had the opportunity to teach. This is the first time since those days that I had to synthesize all this. Um, So thank you for bringing that up. Um, But no, I do not teach that, even though Maybe I should. Um, I think you should. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Yes, yes. Uh, teaching consent and touch, I think, is, is a, there's, there's a great of the underlying messages behind the technique, technical aspect and the consenting aspect and the emotional aspect that, that are worth, uh, worth sharing. Thank you for encouraging me to that. That's a great idea. Um, yes, the accomplished man. So as I, as I started healing, I also developed a taste for activism. Uh, in particular, I met uh, Irfan Daliri from the New Kind Festival that happens every year in Tasmania since uh, 2016, if I'm right. I was there for the first edition. I contributed to the second edition, and it's always uh, a great place to be for activism. And um, yeah, and I decided I wanted to do something bigger than just coaching one-on-one, which is already plenty. I mean, there's no there's no judgment here, um, but I just felt called to do something else. And, and I created the accomplished man. So, so this accomplished man is a, is a brotherhood of men who want to heal from the toxic relationship with pornography or men who are porn addict and who want to, to quit. And it's a pretty fresh movement. Uh, the, the group is only four months old. It is a Facebook group as it is. And we are counting uh, already close to 300 members. So it is growing rapidly. And the idea is just to create a frame for expression for pornography. I'm pretty pleased, uh, and my mom would not. But if you type in pornography in Facebook, I'm pretty much the only person who comes up as um, many, many of the posts that come up are are mine. And I'm very proud of that. it, there, there's a lot of, of sub-movements or other movements that deal with pornography but that, that do not claim, that are not called pornography. And, you know, what if we were to call a cat a cat? What if pornography was pornography and, and we just said it as it was? So the group is confidential, so there's, there's, uh, there's safety in there. But, but, you know, I think it's good to have this, this space that is called pornography addiction and that it's a thing and that we can talk about it. Um, Addiction to pornography is is a double taboo. There's there's a taboo of addiction, which we never really like to talk about. Uh, it's not great to be an alcoholic. It's not great to be a drug addict. It's not great to be a sugar addict. Um, and so there's a bit of taboo and stigma already around addiction. And, and there's a massive stigma around pornography. So addiction to pornography is something, there's thousands of people around you who are addicted to pornography, and you will never know it. So this is why I thought it was important to create that movement and to create that space so that it finally becomes a thing that's available to anyone who's looking for support, that, that we can open the conversation just by putting this out there in the face of everyone. 
in a, in a confidential frame, obviously. So, I mean, obviously porn addiction is a type of sex addiction, isn't it? Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, from what I know, it's not part of the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Stats Manual of Mental Disorders. So it's not a, as easy as someone just looking up that manual and going, yep, you've got this addiction. It sounds like there's a real spectrum of it. And my question That's is, right. how does how does a man know, and I say a man because from what I also read, men are more likely to have a porn, porn addiction than women. It's not to say that women don't have it, but men, from what I can see, and correct me if I'm wrong, are more likely to be porn addicted is that right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, that's right. So th there's a big debate in the in the medical field, in the in the, also in the in general society around: is it possible to have an addiction to sex um, and and pornography? And people, the, the debate is is more around sex than pornography, really. And and some people say it's not it's not possible to be addicted to sex as just a behavior that's like in our in our genes or in our instinct but but you cannot be addicted to that and as someone who has identified myself as a sex addict it is it is heartbreaking to to hear those words because it's it's a complete denial of the distress that that thousands millions of people billions of people with pornography uh, is my belief are are experiencing so um it is not clear cut it's true there's no diagnose, diagnosis and um, as far as I'm concerned, it's 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 very much um, there's the element of compulsion. Let, let's keep it to pornography to keep it simple. Mm. But um, there's there's an element of compulsion to pornography which is undeniable that is shared by everyone. The the desire to want to quit but not to be able to, or to quit a certain behavior but not to be able to. Um, but the, the definition is very loose, and it doesn't need to be to be a label. For me, it's very much about the effect. That is it beneficial? to your life goals, does it bring joy into your life or does it bring chaos and is it detrimental to your life goals? And 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 if you have a compulsion to consuming pornography and it's detrimental, then uh, you can label your, yourself an addict or you cannot label yourself an addict and, and both are fine, uh, but it's something that must be dealt with. So I generally go with a bit more of a, an umbrella term where I say that I invite men to heal from the toxic relationship with pornography. And, and this is undeniable. Uh, also, I'm not a trained uh, physician or doctor. I'm a doctor in astrophysics. I can heal the stars, but uh, I'm not a doctor doctor. So um, I wouldn't be comfortable putting a, a definition where this is not my area of, of, of studies. However, uh, certainly the, the behavior can be it can be pointed out and it can be described and it can be categorized. And I think it would be unfair and inefficient not to do so you've come from a so place the, of lived experience sorry. though so uh i think yes, that's definitely. pretty valuable like yeah yeah definitely. sure you might not be a psychiatrist to turn to the dsm-5 but you have your lived experience and from that that's right you've grown the accomplished man and right. uh sounds like uh you're doing well with that i mean of the three did you say 300 men are now part of that that's right yes yeah. of them um do you ask them what it was that made them join the accomplished man? What's the most common reason they come to you? Yes. So so it's very much a behavior thing. Um, all these men will tell you one thing. They will tell you, I want to stop consuming pornography, and I can't. The reasons why they consume pornography are varied. The, um, the, re the, the impact that it has in their life is varied. 
the fantasies, the, the problems that, that are caused, the imagery, the escalation, all these problems are, are different to each and every one. But there's that theme that these men are entrapped into consuming pornography unconsciously against, against their will or against their, their um, aspiration. And uh, uh, actually, going back, uh, uh, the group in your group, uh, is it mainly straight men or do you have gay men, uh, kind of bisexual men? What kind of men do you have in your group? Yes, there's a whole spectrum. Um, there's a whole spectrum. Uh, as this is a very non judgmental space, and I mean, this is pretty amazing. As I created these groups four years ago, right? Uh, four months ago, sorry. I, I thought it was a bit of a crazy idea because I'm like, this is not going to work. No one's going to join this group. And, and you know, who would, who would do that? Who would uh, accept to be in that space, even though it's confidential? There's going to be trust issues. It's not going to work. And, and it turns out it does. And it turns out I don't have many of the problems that, that most people have in managing a group. And for example, one of the problems that I don't have is, is like discipline and um, reporting posts or rejecting posts because men in this group are so disciplined because you are going into, you're going to talk about a double taboo of addiction to pornography. These men are not going to fuck around, no, mm. no pun intended. They are, they are so, so vigilant to what they say not to hurt anyone else around them, to be non-judgmental and offering to be vulnerable. And it, it is really, really, uh, it is really touching to see that. So there, there's a lot of discipline in the group and, and everybody is, is following that nicely. And, and because there is that, that, that trust, it is truly a brotherhood. And because there is that trust in the group, then um, yes, it's, it's a safe space for, for any man. There's no, uh, there's no discrimination, obviously, on, on sexuality. There's also men who come out in the group um and and yeah it it men who are affected by pornography doesn't matter what their sexual orientation is they will they will suffer from the same uh similar impacts and 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 problems and challenges following that that sounds great cuz you know as i suppose as as a woman myself i i i almost can't envision a group of men uh talking to each other and supporting each other cuz it's always women that I know have, have groups supporting each other and I know that a lot of men do commit suicide more than women because they lack support uh, and support groups. Uh, so it sounds like it's a, it's a great group. I, I, it, yeah, I wish I could be a fly on the wall in that group because I'm very curious, yeah. but I know as a woman right. I can't go into that group and that's okay. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, thank you. Thank you. And, yeah, just to bounce on what you're saying, it is uh, – it's a bit of an observation that I can make from being a, a dual, uh, having dual nationality, or I don't have the Australian nationality, but at least from having lived in two, two countries for a long time, is that um, I feel it is particularly true for Australian men. And, and I don't mean this in a bad way or in a judgmental way, uh, but I, I'm observing, I'm observing that there's a heaviness in the heart, in the hearts of Australian men. There is there are there's imperatives of being this manly man. There is there's these there's demands of not showing vulnerability, not showing emotions, um, and and I find in comparison, French men. This is obviously a generalization. It, it's it's not true, but it's just a general observation. That's not true for everybody, but just a general observation. Um, but but typically, French men would be more more emotional 
uh, and more open to sharing their emotions and by and building emotional connection in their interactions and dialogues. Whereas I feel, I feel with Australian men, there is this imperative for efficiency and, um, and you know, to be a mate, that the, the, the mateship is very present and it's probably what's, what's, what's balancing it all. Um, but if not for mateship, then there's this, this heaviness in, in, in history, there's this heaviness in, um, yeah, just in this, this radical, what I perceive as radical gender identity that a, that a man is meant to be strong, is meant to, a man is meant to have a deep voice. If, if you compare the men, the voices of French men and the voices of Australian men, you'll hear such a difference. And I'm pretty sure my voice has changed too uh, from being in Australia for so long. So, so yes. So I, the group is not only for Australian men, it is for anyone who, who identifies to the mission of the accomplished man. But I feel there's a strong Australian presence in there. And I'm, I'm very happy that I can provide the space where where men can be men. So there's lots of French men as well? There's a few French men, and there's also a few French men who live in Australia. Um, but yes, but it's a, bit, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, but yes, I also have a bit of a French. Ha- I have an over-representation of Australian men in the group, but not so much of, of French men. It's pretty balanced in this regard. Going back to your teenage years, um, I had a question about parents and their, say, young teenage boy, you know, he's left alone on his device, his computer for a couple of hours, and the parents are kind of worried that maybe he's also developing a porn addiction. Uh, do you have any advice for those parents? Yes. So so that's the topic of prevention. And um as for now, I'm really dedicated to to healing, and I'm really passionate about understanding healing and modeling healing. Uh, but prevention is is in fact what I believe is most is most necessary, uh, and that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I'm no expert in prevention. I would love to contribute in the near future. What I could what I could say from now, as as someone who's been through that as a teenager, as someone who had to uh, lie to my parents and hide from my parents. Um, well, first, there's stats. I'm not a big fan of stats when it comes to the realm of pornography. I will explain why, but um, I can explain why. But um, I read the other day that 34% of people have had accidental exposure to pornography on the internet with some pop-up or whatever. Something came up. 34%. Because that sex is, sells, right? Th- exactly, because sex sells. This is so not okay. We're talking about consent. I mean, this is... The third of the population, and and especially like what age are targeted, you know, we don't know, or are victim of that, we don't know. And I was reading another stat, which is that the first exposure to pornography is 11 years old. As as I've been working on this topic, the the age threshold for first contact with pornography has come sooner and sooner and sooner. I've had guys in my group who have been in contact with pornography from age eight, from age six. But now the average, the average age for first contact is 11 years old, and this is this is terrible, or it is not to be neglected because at 11 year old we think our children are you know so innocent and they go to school and they probably won't have a girlfriend until this and that and they're, they're before puberty anyway. So that's so, before a kid can get an erection. That's right. That's mm. right. Exactly. And so what's the risk? You know, at 11-year-old, you're not going to go out and give the talk. You know, you, you get the birds and bees talk, but uh, you're not going to go full out, uh, all out talking about pornography and these kind of things. And, and I think 
it is maybe necessary to have this conversation quite early, and it doesn't need to be on private fee specifically, but you know, maybe around uh, before it happens, before around age nine or ten, you know, have maybe this conversation about you know the internet is a place where there's all sorts of things, and it's not so much the goal is not to forbid or to condemn. But but I think it's explaining the consequences, you know, and it can be in a flowery language. You don't have to say you'll be addicted to pornography for 17 years and join the accomplishment, although you're welcome to say that. But um, it, it's about it's about explaining the consequences. And if I had known the consequences, if I look back at my 11-year-old self or 13-year-old self as it was, I would have been cautious. At, at 13-year-old, you understand the implications of, if if a parent tells you, you shouldn't do something because it's going to have long-term devastating consequences in your life. You may or may not listen to that, but you will hear it. You will hear it and you will take into account when a decision comes out to be made on the particular purpose or the particular um, domain or advice. So, so having the conversation, I think, is quite important. Uh, but mind you, even though my dad had a conversation with me and, and he, was, you know, he was really – it was really, um, what's what I'm looking for, um, skillful in the way he did it. You know, it was very light. He just said, you know, we have a computer now in the house. And, you know, it was just two sentences. But he made his point across. And even though he did, it wasn't enough. And and I had, my dad had complete trust in me. And, and if I ever did something that was disapproved of, it was pornography. So um, it has this power. Uh, and if two more things I would say would be internet filtering, I'm not a father myself, so I haven't looked into it, haven't had the need, but it's um, it is out there and it's very much needed. Internet filtering in 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 homes, and um, and you know having some some look on what what content is is being is being accessed, uh, even though it triggers in me the, the, the need for freedom and that you don't want to you know it, it, it's a measure of protection you want to give freedom but you also want some measure of protection and i think uh, i will definitely implement that when i'm a father uh, and finally it's simple things like not having a computer in their bedroom uh, <laughs> yeah when the it, it, it's it's when i was at my dad's place which is when everything started um the, the, the computer was in the living room. So I had to wait that everybody was asleep, get up at 11 and do my crazy things, et cetera, et cetera. And then at some point I convinced my mom, I convinced my mom knowingly and I knew exactly what I was doing to have the computer in my bedroom because I had plenty of, of excuses. Um, and, and she listened to me and she did. And that was the beginning of the heavy, heavy downfall. So uh, now there's there's the problem of smartphones, which I'm, I'm not really able to make a smart recommendation about smartphones. Uh, no pun intended again. But uh, yeah, at least not a computer in the bedroom is 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 minimizing the harm. If ever any harm would come, that would be that would be a thing. Um, yeah, that sounds like yeah, a potentially a potentially an effective technique. It's quite simple to to you know implicate that one, isn't it? That's right. That's right. It's just not good. A computer is in a central place in the house, you know, and and if they've decided they want to watch pornography, they will watch pornography. And there's pretty much not much you can do about that. And and it's OK. At least if you if there's elements to to limit exposure, it is it is always better. The more you can limit, they will find ways around because kids will be kids. But uh, but at least it will reduce this this exposure. It will prevent, you know, uh, what was my worst binge was probably 
my worst thing was probably what from from 8 p.m. till um, 9 a.m. in the morning, 13 hours. It would probably avoid Whoa. a 13-hour binge. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Goodness. Um, so that's why you don't want a computer in the bedroom. You want a computer in the middle of the living room so that they can check Wikipedia and cool animal facts. Um, and finally, what I'm thinking also is that if if you ever uh, catch a children consuming pornography, you know, the history, web browser, whatever, you caught them in the act, whatever, catch them in the act, whatever it is, then I think it's important to have to have a conversation uh, and informing them that, you know, well, that's it, it, it it's done and they're doing what they're doing, um, reducing the guilt as much as possible and informing them that when the time's right, if they ever feel distress in regards to that, they can talk to people, they can talk to mom and dad, they can talk to a professional who will help them, they can talk to their friends uh, whom they trust or an educator. And I think having that door open uh, is 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 really important. Having that seed of an idea that if this ever gets out of control, which it will, it will totally. Pornography is only a downward spiral if you if you have addictive ground. Then there is a space for that, and and you can turn into that space. That's such a good point to acknowledge that you've realized that they're doing this as a parent, and uh, and then yeah, just leaving a little seed there for them. And that's uh, right. Yeah, that's that's an amazing bit it of advice. It breaks the taboo, you mm. know, and you, you just let them know you're here for them, and that you're not criticizing them, you're not judging mm. them. Uh, my mom once <laughs> it's people always get good for things they haven't done, right? And it happened to me. My mom once had her dozens of horrible things on her desktop, and she's like, "Oh, what did you do?" And I was like, "Well, it, it's not me, and it wasn't me at all." But that that didn't count for the, the so many hours I had spent on pornography the day before. But um, but it wasn't me. So and and there was a lot of judgment in that, and I, and I felt like I had to hide this even more. So 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 I know it, it may be hard in a desire to protect our children to to not judge and to to remain to remain open. That I would invite to to really just open the dialogue, make sure and make sure they feel comfortable, and just say if this ever gets out of hand, I'm here for you. We don't have to talk about it now, but if ever one day I'm here for you, or we can talk to someone. I love that. I'm going to use that. Um, Great. <laughs> yeah. With with addiction, porn, pornographic addiction, sex addiction, do you have anything else you'd like to leave us with before I ask you some more kind of broader questions about Dimitri? Uh, no, I think yes. The answer is yes. Um, I just think if you're if you if you're addicted to pornography. Uh, then then the first step is really to acknowledge that fact and and to see where where you're sitting with that you know this is a thing in your life you you can't deny it anymore if you do um then don't because the the the, the devastation will be obvious in in a, in a, in a short time um, whether it's weeks or or years it will it will catch up so acknowledging the situation is important um because I, if I understand well, your audience is mostly female. Um, I'm, I'm suspecting some of of uh, women could suspect that your uh, partners have an addiction to pornography, or there's this dialogue happening. So I felt like yes. So how could, how can we approach our partners? You know, that was another question I had actually. If you suspect yeah. that your man's addicted, what do you do? Do you treat right, him differently absolutely. to your 11 year old kid? That's right, and, and it's really no different. Um, 
men go into pornography. Right. Long story short, pornography is is so addictive because it echoes the core wound we have in us. Pornography, uh, we we have so many amount of trauma or so many amount of attachment trauma or some amount of something, a baggage that we carry that creates a wound in us. And, and, and unless we look into that again, we carry that our whole entire lives being completely obvious that it's there. And yet, because it is in our own unconscious and the unconscious mind is the decision maker, it is pretty much this wound that is making the decisions for us and that explains a lot of the crap that's happening in our lives. And so, and so people consume pornography because basically it's an echo of that wound. The depictions in pornography are, are the archetypal battle. It's a mythology. And it's just a transfer of power from one archetype to the other. And, and it's a battle that will empower the shadow. It's a, it's a battle that will empower the ego, that will empower the wound. And that's why we crave it so much. Because for the first time, the wound is had and the wound is, is being given the right to express itself in, in, in his right in, in pornography. If you remove all the sexual depictions, what it is about, it's about a shadow, a dark side that is being empowered. And so we crave that because, uh, because otherwise our dark side is always repressed and never heard. So the, the metaphor I use is that imagine a child and a child has broken his arm, poor child has fallen down, broken his arm, and now he's in pain. And the child is in pain and he's like splurting blood everywhere. And so he runs in the room and, and he's hurting, but no one wants to listen to his broken arm because he's splurting blood everywhere. And so it's like, no, you shouldn't be there because there's you know, a precious painting and the floor's just been mopped. And so go away. And so the child has a wound, a broken arm, and he's not listened to by the parents or the primary carers or whoever that is. And that's it. And, it, and it's just dismissed. And so then the child will... will will keep that rejection with them and their broken arm and they will just go and do something else. And that, and then this, this arm will, will eventually scar off, but their arm will still be broken and it will still feel inadequate, et cetera. And this is a metaphor for the wound. The wound we carry is exactly that. There's a child that's screaming, an inner child in us, and it's not being heard. And with pornography, basically what you're watching is other children with broken arms being in positions of power. Well, they're usually not heard. This time they're in power. So there's many, yeah, yeah that's going to take me to, to many different places. But yeah, long story short, as an example, if it's, you know, if I think about a pornographic scenario where there's the pizza guy who comes to deliver a pizza and then who is this beautiful woman who's actually uh, really available for him, then what you see is, is a pizza guy, so probably someone with low uh, social status, maybe low self-esteem. And the dream would be that this, this beautiful woman opens the door for him, but no, it just delivers his pizzas and nothing ever happens. But then this one beautiful day, this beautiful woman probably uh, of higher social status, uh, probably who reflects something about him that uh, she's very precious, he, he puts her on a pedestal, suddenly he has access to that woman. And so basically he has access to his higher self. Uh, and, and so that's all pornography is doing. If you remove all the sexual depictions, it's just reassuring for the wound inside us to see this theater of, of expression. That was a, a very, very big tangent <laughs> to our initial topic, uh, which was, oh, yes. So how do we help uh, people, uh, men, as, as a woman, if, if your partner is, is uh, maybe addicted to pornography? Yeah, so from, um, that, from that I gather what I take away from what you just said is that yes. if I 
realized that my partner had an addiction to pornography, I wouldn't just, dis- I shouldn't maybe just dismiss him as being a creep or a sleaze, that there are deeper issues there and that I should maybe be a bit compassionate and understanding and exploring that. That's right. It's exactly that. It's exactly that. And and basically you have to think about this. You have to think that whenever who, anyone is watching pornography, they are a child. They are a child and they're deeply connected to these emotions. So they're not a child doing sex stuff, which would be horrendous, but there is their inner child, it's their emotional center that's engaged. So they are not this like, you know, creep, rapist, whatever it is. It is just the, the inner child inside us is trying to, to grab some truth and some some space. So so that's it. If, if you ever catch a man or a woman, someone watching pornography, they'll react out of panic as a child that's eating jam out of the jar. <laughs> and that's exactly how they feel like. And, mm. and, and they're just that innocent and just that desperate and just that oblivious. Um, so the, the first step really is to be non-judgmental. And, and it's probably hard because you might feel that it's about you as a woman, that you're not sexy enough, that he's lied to you, that the trust is broken, he's watching other women online, this is crazy. And I hear those things and 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 they have a right to be and, and to be expressed. But but for for men in most cases, it's not about that. It's about it's about fulfilling their fantasies that they're ashamed of. And and they would want to fulfill these fantasies, or they, there's something in them that they will want to express. But they cannot because they feel ashamed. They've, they've recorded that it's unhealthy, that it that they should not. It's repressed, and so because it's repressed, they don't talk to you about it. So if if the case happens, um, as much as possible, try to be non-judgmental. Try to be. Uh, I invite you to be non-judgmental. To keep the channels of communication open, and express how we feel, and 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 support them in the process. They want to heal. They want to be free. I had someone on the phone just two hours ago. It was exactly that. It says, we're having communication breakdown with my partner. I want to have pornography out of the way to understand what's our relationship in reality without pornography because there's this point of tension. So, so it's important to, to create the space for a dialogue and to, and to understand that he wants to be out of this. He hates it even more than you. He's suffering even more than you from that. And if he could just push on a button and be free and be able to express all of this with you and be free from pornography, he would. But there's so much happening inside of him or her. Uh, you know, repression, trauma, whatever it is, shame, so much shame accumulated that they cannot. So it would be really that to be non-judgmental as much as possible, keep the channels of communication open, understand that it's about them and not about you, even though you're allowed to have feelings and to express them and, and to accompany them on their journey to healing, you know, um, to really alleviate the guilt and support them in the healing process at whichever stage they could be. Some, uh, yeah, remarkable words of wisdom. I would never even have thought of, uh, yeah, hearing some of the things that you've actually talked about. So amazing. Thank you oh, so thank much. You. Thank you. <laughs> um, because, yeah, you've had a lived experience and you're talking from experience. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, oh, of course, Natasha. Thank you. So, Dimitri, what, what people in your life have been your biggest inspirations until now? Right. Biggest inspirations. Um it's, I'm realizing with this question that it's not about, it's mostly about what people achieve. I wish it was what about people, that it was about who people are, 
but it's not about what they achieve and, and what they do. Um, I can think about Bill Mollison and, and David Holmgren, who are the, the founders of permaculture, and, and I'm a big, big uh, partisan of permaculture. So I, I have been inspired by their work and their, their activism. There's very much passive activism uh, that they're doing. Um, if I think, if I look back, there's three psychoanalysts, uh, obviously Freud, Jung, and uh, Lacan, Jacques Lacan. Um, their work, I use their work every day, and, and, and psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis is such a powerful tool. Um, that's a big inspiration for me that, that I really uh, want to cultivate as much as possible. Um, there's a, an artist and friend of mine, he, he, would, he would qualify himself as a cyberpunk called Yan Min. You can find him on YouTube and on Facebook. And he, he's really a mentor for me. And he deals with topics like virtual sexuality, virtual sex and virtual sexuality, um, technology, and, um, and yes, hacking, uh, cyberpunk, cyberpunk and the influence of cyberpunk on, on consciousness. Uh, he, he's, he's just, he ticks all the boxes for me. I, I, I just could talk, in, talk to him for, for hours. Uh, and I feel so, so privileged to have, to have met him. I just met him on YouTube, really. Uh, I discovered him on YouTube and then I said, hey man, this is really cool what you're doing. Can we, uh, can we have a chat? And we, we had a, a coffee in Paris together. Oh, wow. Awesome. Sorry, what's his name again? His name is Yan, yeah. Y-A-N-N, Min, M-I-N-H. Wow. And I'm Yan Min. I'll put that in the show notes for everyone to look at. Awesome. Thank you. He's also an artist. He's also, yeah, he, he does a lot. Um, and in terms of art, the two references that come to mind is Chase Lisbon. So Chase Lisbon is a photographer. He's an erotica photographer. And back in the 90s, created uh, his brand, I guess, or a movement called Supercult. And I guess he was one of the first hipsters, really. It was a movement on erotica, and his models were all women or girls. They were pretty young. I mean, uh, you know, we're talking in their 20s. Uh, models that had tattoos and, and, and piercings. And I was not so much a fan of that, but it was just the light and the aesthetics and the proximity that are described in his photos are was just amazing. I guess he... He described the, the teenagehood that I wanted to have as a sex addict that I could not have. But there's also that that component of of you know really putting women on a pedestal in the in the brightest light um, with the rich personality. Uh, I was just it's just amazing. And and I discovered him with pornography. I, there was a phase where I was downloading about 200 videos a day on the computer. No wonder my mom was complaining the computer was slow. Uh, Were you going broke at the same time? Was that costing you money? It was never costing me money. I was using Kaza at the time or Napster, whatever mm. was available. Mm. I never invested a single cent in pornography. For me, there was a red flag. There were two red flags for me, investing money and uh, not seeing my friends. If my friends ever wanted to to go out and I would say no because of pornography, for me, that was, uh, mm. was a red flag. It was like, no, I can't do that. Um, and so as I was downloading these 200 videos, then there was like this, this strange video of a girl naked and dancing and being sexy, uh, but a bit underground as well. I'm like, what is this? And then, yeah, I just was a complete fan, fan of him. Uh, and I'm, I aspired to meet him. Now he's, he's very much, uh, he's a lot more, a lot more, um, what's the word? 
wise, I would say, and it's not so much into this rebellion movement and, and crazy sex life. Uh, lives a very quiet life in the U.S. Very inspired by him. Uh, and Shepard Ferry, Shepard Ferry, uh, street artist, uh, known to have painted the Nelson Mandela uh, wall paints in uh, in South Africa. Um, the what is he famous for? The the brand Obey, obviously. Mm. Um, and all his paintings. I'm just a big fan of his uh, his imagery and and the way he describes describes art. He's made a beautiful mural in in Sydney. That's one of I think it's the second biggest he's ever made, and it's in the heart of George Street. And it's a pleasure to see it every time I walk. I walk by then. I don't think I've um, seen that one. Yes, it's uh, where if it's nearby um, Dimex that I used to pronounce Dimex as, oh, yeah. as a French man. That's <laughs> Dimex. In front of Dimex, there's you see this uh, this huge huge uh, mural, and and I think there's mentions of uh, freedom that the, the the French. I'm getting lost into words now. Too much Frenchness. Um, <laughs> never mind. There's some there's some French appeal to his to his work. I'll have to check it out. I pass the mix most days of the week, so I'll have to check that one out. Oh yeah, there you go. Mm. It's hard to miss. Uh, yeah, you see it definitely. Blue, white and blue. Okay. Um, and last inspiration I would say is Ron Classens, who's been my martial arts instructor um, for close to ten years now. This is just a, a continuous model of integrity and, and inspiration. Uh, and obviously my late father, who also has uh, has been a great companion in my childhood. What was his name? Christian. Christian, Christian in French. Right. Beautiful. Yes. And favorite books that you can share with us, Dimitri? Yes, favorite books. Um, I haven't read a single novel in 10 years. <laughs> so because I'm so obsessed with modeling human interaction and sexuality and and the mind, um, nonetheless, uh, what came to mind was um, a book by so it's a French author called Boris Vian. He's a really famous French author, uh, early 20th century. He's written this book. I feel bad now. I'm, I'm sure it's been translated into English. Uh, I should look at the title. The, the, French, the French title is Lecume des Jours which is kind of ridiculous to say this way. But um, yes, Boris Vian, that's his most famous work, and it's just uh, gorgeous. Um, is it fiction or term, non-fiction? That's a fiction book, <laughs> and I read it when I was uh, probably 17 or something like that, and it's had a strong impact on me. Um, I also uh, really, really like Walden by Henry David Thoreau, obviously, as someone who's a big fan of the wilderness. And, um, and and maybe I have been inspired by him when I was living in my tent, even though I read the book after. Um, yeah, I'm really a big fan of his work. And when it comes to just um, nonfiction, uh, I rely a lot on my models of of a methodical transactional analysis that's been developed in the 60s by Eric Byrne, Swiss um, doctor who, who basically rehashed psychoanalysis into a more digestible format. And there's a beautiful um, synthesis of, of this work. Uh, it's been done by an author called Neil Bright, N-E-I-L-B-R-I-G-H-T. And the book's called Rethinking Everything. And it's just a simple model of uh, within us, there is an inner child that is wounded and the seat of our emotions and an inner parent that is the seat of our moral beliefs and principles and another agency, which is the spiritual self. And 
and we spend our whole life in, within these three agencies where consciousness switches from one agency to another. And it's basically this model of trying to refine and adapt to, to pornography uh, that's um, it's heavily based on, on this book. Sounds like you've been doing a lot of deep thinking, Dimitri. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> yes, I like, I like research. I, because I believe I have this gift to look within myself and make connections, I, I use it as much as I can. And um, yes, and, that, and my ambition is really to, to be able to map pornography and, and, and desires and, and link that to a way that, uh, that reflects trauma, you know, or the wound. Like we all carry a wound that expresses in itself in different ways. And what, what if there was a direct link between these wounds and, and, and our fantasies, which is something that Freud mm-hmm. already raised a million mm-hmm. times. But what if there was, you know, a direct correlation between the pornographic content that people were consuming and a, and a straight correlation to the trauma or the wound, and then we could use that to fast track people's healing, you know, and that, that's really my obsession those days is that, is really that. Yeah, you, know, you wouldn't necessarily think that a wound would lead to a certain fantasy. So I think, yeah, that is quite fascinating, actually. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I think there's something there. Mm. How about songs that make you happy, Dimitri? Songs that make me happy. Uh, massive, massive fan of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Um, there's a song by the Red Hot Chili Peppers called On Mercury that will give you instant joy for sure if you like the trumpet. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, Happy by Pharrell Williams. Like every time I hear anyone say happy, I hear that song. <laughs> yeah. And it's just, it's just well done. It just works. Yeah. So um, catchy. That's right. It's, it's just, and, and, and you can't, you can't feel sad with it. It's just your day. You start your day with it and that's it. You're on mm-hmm. high. Um, yeah. And anything that's from um, Walk of the Earth is really fun as well. The group, group of guys who started recording songs as a group on YouTube for fun and now how like millions and millions of views and, and lead concerts all around the world. Uh, it's really, really uplifting as well. And what's your dream collaboration? Do you have one or two? Yes. Yes. I think, I think I have one or I even have two. Um, it's as I was, what I was mentioning about mapping, mapping the link between the core wound and and the pornographic content people would consume, um, it would it would be awesome to have a credited psychology researcher of some kind who who's invested in in the sexual uh, research field, who has an interest for for sexual fantasies and how that can correlate to to the core wound. So there is, um, I have lots of ambitions about building questionnaires and collecting data. Now, pretty much, uh, I'm, I'm by healing men and working with men on this topic and collecting a lot of information that can help me build this map. But if I could develop a synthetic way to, uh, to, to be able to build a questionnaire, for example, to reach a big number of people, then it would be, it would be easy to have a statistically relevant, um, information on this map and what's possible to be done with it. So that's, that's why I would like to meet uh, such a, such a psychology person. That would be amazing. Would you do a PhD to, would you do another PhD in in this? Sounds like that, that's almost like a PhD topic for you. Yeah, that's right. And, and I'm thinking sometimes, um, look, it's complicated because I consider myself a polymath. Like I'm someone who has 200 ideas per day and, (laughs) and I have to choose and it breaks my heart that I do have to choose. So, um, I'm hoping that at some point, um, 
I will be able to to be so comfortable financially that I'll be able to start you know various initiatives and I can be both a researcher in pornography and contributing to uh, astronomy and archaeoastronomy or cultural astronomy and you know do all these things but um it's one of the challenges for me with this project has been to focus on one thing in every day to do the one same thing for uh for you know it's been maybe uh it's been four months that the group exists but i've been working with this for about two years now so uh, it comes with sacrifices but they're they're so worth doing and, and the reason for that is because with pornography there's there's a possibility for global healing there is an opportunity for putting the world out there and and if we ever build this map then we can we can fast track healing we can fast track the healing of trauma by having strong indicators and, and identifiers and and so then we just need to to have the word out so that's why i think another good collab would be an influential activist someone who cares about pornography and and who who would like to 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 contribute but it it is it is a bit of a politically charged topic pornography is a big industry um I was going to say, do a lot of people make a living from pornography? Like, uh, how so many? Right. Yeah, around the world, uh, how many people actually survive because of pornography? That's right. So uh, that's uh, that's another topic with with money. Uh, I'm not so versed in that topic, but uh, there's, I mean, how many? This is this is pretty horrifying. Put it this way, but how many? Um, you know, college students. Um, Women in particular, I would assume, survive thanks to webcams and things like that because this has been now so available. Um, I mean, there's there's good and bads if you think about. Is this better than than um, you know prostitution networks? Obviously, it is. You know, uh, if 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 a woman has a desire to to present herself in in webcams and uh, she can earn a living from that, and that's that's fulfilling for her and she can do that from the safety of her bedroom. That's, she can't get an amazing. STD. That's right, you know, and, and you know, no violence, no, and, and she has this contact and it's, it's great if that's fulfilling, but there's so many, so many other sides that come with that. And um, yes, there's, yeah, I had a, I had a debate the other day as I was looking for, um, for, I'm, I'm about to launch my own podcast too, and I was looking for, for guests, and I really wanted to have a dominatrix or a sex worker uh, to be part of the the podcast, so we can hear a bit more about that side of things. And and as I invited a few dominatrices on the podcast, uh, or yeah, on the podcast, one of them replied, "Well, I don't want to do that because you're stigmatizing men and generalizing men into." into addicts and and I don't want to support that as someone who's a commercial um sex worker and who's who's making movies and things like that I I do not support your work and I think I think it's it's first it was a misunderstanding because I do not generalize I just help men who are in distress uh, if someone says I'm in distress I'm just here to to give a hand this is really all I intend to do um but there's this this thing about there's so many condemnation of pornography that it's it's hard to talk about it without people being defensive. But also there's the opposite as well that people who who just claim you know freedom with pornography and things like that. And you know if if you're someone who records amateur movies in your living room or whatever kind of pornography you do, it's great. Um, but it's 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 unfair to to ignore the people who are who are in distress from it. So my stance is really to not have an ethical 
position or or a moral judgment on pornography. It, you know, it's something people do, and I'm really um, and I'm hoping that the people who produce pornography produce it in the best way possible and the most human and ethical way possible. Um, at this stage, I'm I'm more concerned about the consumers and the impact it has on them uh, with prevention, hopefully soon, and and healing as much as possible. So when's your podcast being launched? Do you have a launch date ahead? Um, I'm not that organized that I have a launch date. Uh, I have three guests uh, coming ahead. It's very exciting. I'm aiming, what's the month? 27th of May today. Um, it'll be a, there'll be a first episode up in June, that's for sure. Fantastic. And what's the name of your podcast going to be? Um, it's going to be, I had a good name for it. It was going to be either Human Nature or The Sex People. And it's basically it's basically interviewing sex professionals um, to hear their take on on pornography and, and other domains in which I'm not an expert, but that could benefit uh, the men who have joined the accomplishment. I'm looking forward to it. Please let us know when it sits up. Thank you. Sure, I will share. Obviously. And my uh, my last question to you, I was going to ask you about your PhD and how you know top five tips for getting through a PhD, but. I thought I'd ask you a different question. I, I have a friend, very good friend from high school, who's soon to move to the Blue Mountains. Her name is Carolina Olivares Martin. I'll dedicate this episode to Carolina. Um, you can you give her some advice? She's moving there with her family, uh, two young kids. What advice would you give to someone moving to the Sydney Blue Mountains area? So, so, so moving to the Sydney area. And moving to the Blue Mountains area will be a whole different enterprise. Um, for someone who'd be moving to Sydney, I would say make sure you have comfortable amounts of savings because the cost of life is pretty expensive, even though very uh, charming, charming lifestyle, very pleasant lifestyle, and very comfortable if you have money. If as a PhD student living on $22,000 a year for four years, um, there was a lot of doors that were closed to me, especially in regards to culture, that I could not access um, because of that. So comfortable lifestyle in Sydney comes with a bit of savings um, and making making reasonable visa choices as well. Uh, moving to the Blue Mountains, I would say rug up. Rug <laughs> up. It gets pretty cold in here. Um, we get negative temperatures often. Um, but if you ask me, it's just really personal preference here, but the the quality of life in, in, in the Blue Mountains is unequaled. Um, there is a cultural scene. There is solidarity. There is ma local markets. There's a lot of that. So um, it's, it's been a really good move for me to move to the mountains and collect to, to the wilderness. Um, I've noticed also that maybe I, I fit into this category, but the Blue Mountains tends to be the – the, the pit for all the rebels and all the misfits and all the people who who orbit around Sydney but do not fit in the, the mainstream scene in Sydney. The Blue Mountains is very much the spiritual and, and underground um, Sydney scene. So uh, if you're someone who are a bit of an artist, a bit of a rebel, a bit of a free thinker, then the Blue Mountains are definitely for you. You're a great advertisement for the Blue Mountains, Dimitri. Yes, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm convinced. That's it. I'm, <laughs> I'm really, I bought them. I love them. Thank you so much. Uh, I should say that in French. Merci beaucoup. That's the limit of my French. Oh, je t'en prie. <laughs> For, um, yeah, talking about a, a very interesting topic. And uh, 
I'm taking a lot away from this. And, and the main thing is, I think for me is, um, yeah, non-judgment and being non-judgmental uh, about people who have addictions full stop, regardless of whether it's pornography or anything else. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Natasha, for having me today. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dimitri Duchesne. Dimitri has taught me the importance of being non-judgmental and keeping the channels of communication open. Dimitri would love to hear from you. If you have a meaningful journey you would like to share with him, don't hesitate to contact him through Facebook. You can join the conversation in the Brotherhood Facebook group, The Accomplished Man. But of course, it's men only. So uh, if you're not a man, maybe you can tell other men about it. Uh, But it sounds like it's an amazing place to, you know, gather as a man with a problem with addiction to pornography. And of course, there is theaccomplishedman.com. Share this episode with your lovers, friends, other parents. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel. If you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash, Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people like Dimitri I can interview, or books to read. Until next time, stay fantabulous.